Thank you, Megan. So the past few weeks, we have been looking at the life and the ministry of Elijah. Elijah was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel, and he lived when Israel was very much a nation on the decline. He lived a little bit more than 100 years before the nation of Israel ceased to exist as an independent nation. The, the events that we've been uh, talking about take place in about 850-ish B.C., and by 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes of Israel um, were invaded by the Assyrians, and a few hundred years later, the remnant of that nation joined up with the remnant of the southern kingdom of Judah to the south and uh, spent about 400 years as glorified vassal states of the Persians, then the Greeks, and the Roman empires. And so this is very much the, the waning days of Israel as a nation. So Elijah is not exactly living in the glory days. Um, however, even though Elijah was not living in the glory days, God was still at work in Elijah's ministry. Two weeks ago, we talked about how God had spent three years preparing Elijah in private for what God was about to start doing through him in public and how he had gone and confronted a wicked king. The king's name is Ahab. We are told that he was the most wicked king that Israel ever had up to that point, which is a pretty, you know, that is not a merit badge you want to earn if you're Ahab, because there were a lot of really bad kings. But when Ahab was on the scene, we're told, hey, this guy is the worst ever. And so Elijah went and confronted him. Then more than three years later, Elijah showed up again and said, hey, that thing that I said was going to happen, it happened, right? There had been no rain, no dew, no nothing in the land for three years. All that time, God had continued to provide for Elijah and keep him safe and keep him, him fed. And so here, three plus years later, Elijah shows up and confronts Ahab again. He says, hey, why don't you meet me on top of Mount Carmel, which is this mountain that kind of overlooks the Mediterranean Sea. And why don't you bring all of the false prophets of your false gods that you and your wife worship, and you meet me on top of this mountain, and we will decide once and for all who the one true God of Israel is. And, well, as we can imagine, um, the one true God showed up and the false gods did not, and Elijah won emphatically. One of the things that we did not cover last week was that after God proved that he was the one true God, he actually sent fire down from heaven. Um, the, the people then slaughtered the false prophets. Not exactly a happy bedtime story there. Hey, kids, and God showed up in a big way, and then 850 false prophets were murdered. Um, I wouldn't say murdered, maybe executed, um, but still not exactly a happy end of the story. Um, it started to rain, and it didn't just kind of start to rain. It started to rain, big, big rain. And Elijah says to the king, hey, you're going to be stuck on this mountain for a long time if you don't go down now. Because, you know, that's how mud works, especially when it hasn't rained in several years. And so um, King Ahab and his chariots start going down the mountain. And the Holy Spirit comes upon Elijah and he starts running like next to the chariot, which as someone who's not a runner, I imagine you have to be going pretty fast to go next to a chariot. And then we're told that he actually outruns the chariot the whole way down the mountain. We're not given any... <laughs> There's no like reason why that is included in the narrative. We're not said, told, hey, Elijah ran really fast to prove that you, know, you should be running. The writer of 1 Kings just wanted us to know that God didn't just work in a big public way for you know, himself, but then he empowered Elijah to outrun a chariot down a mountain. We said last week that we have a God who is eager to prove his presence and his power in our life, and that we have a God that does not want people to sit on the fence 
and decide between following him or chasing after the world. He wants his people to be faithful to him and faithful to him only. So now we are all caught up, and in just a minute we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19. One thing I want to say before we get into that. This is not one of those passage, passages that easily lends itself to point towards the cross. This is not a passage where we can end this passage and say, and that's just like what Jesus did. I mean, we, we could, but there'd be some, some stretches and some leaps, and I think that kind of does a, a disservice to the text. But here's what we need to remember when we read through the book of 1 Kings, when we read through the book of 2 Kings, when we read through the Chronicles, when we read through the prophets, what God is doing among his people is demonstrating to them that there is only one king who can ever be trusted, and it is Jesus. There is one king who can ever be fully depended on to not let his people down, and that king is Jesus. And so the kings and the prophets are these stories of God's people wrestling with the fact that people keep failing, yet God remains faithful. That's what we need to be looking at when we read this passage. No matter how many times people fail, the bad kings, they fail, but even the good prophets fail sometimes. Yet God remains faithful no matter what. So that's where we're going to be this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we are in 1 Kings chapter 19. God, you are good and you are faithful. Remind us of your faithfulness. Remind us of your faithfulness when things are going well. Remind us of your faithfulness when things are going poorly. God, show us that you are a God that can be trusted. Show us that you are a God that we can depend on. And show us that you are a God that has a plan and a purpose for us. And that that plan and that purpose is your glory. God, thank you that we get to be a people who plays a part in the work that you are doing in the world. Thank you that you are using us to glorify yourselves. May we never take that for granted. Father, bless us now as we look to your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We typically tend to associate... Um, deep depression with rock bottom. We think that if several things don't go our way, that those things will compound upon themselves, and then we'll find ourselves in a hole that we can't get out of, and that is when depressive episodes begin. But in a few minutes, we're going to look at this account here in 1 Kings 19 and see that that's not always how it is. In fact, that's kind of a rather inaccurate generalization. Um, and I have to say, for me, that, that's almost validating the passage that we're going to look at here. Because whenever I have had a bad week, a bad month, a bad semester, there have been several of those, um, I have been able to kind of brush my shoulders off and be like, do you know what? It's okay. I got this. You know, sometimes that's just, that. them's the breaks, you know, that sometimes things just don't go your way. Sometimes things don't go the way you hope they would. You win some, you lose some. And my spirit doesn't really change. My you know, my attitude doesn't typically change even after a bad day or a bad week. But the most depressive, and I don't know if, if that's even the, the word that I should claim because that's a clinical term. If Cheryl said it, then you could listen to it. If I say it, then, you know, maybe don't listen to it. Um, but the most despair, the most despair I have ever felt personally was after an experience that was an incredible high and an incredible happy moment. And I know I, I've shared this before, but several years ago, probably 2009, 2010, um, I was home from seminary. My wife and I were living in Texas, but both of our families were here. And so 
we would not just come home for a couple weeks for Christmas, but we would spend a week with her dad, and then we'd spend a week with my parents. It was we, we moved around a lot. And so we were here for Christmas. We were staying with Melissa's dad in Palm Harbor, and I had been out with some of my oldest and best friends in the world. And it was one of the most exciting, most refreshing nights of of my life. It had been one of those rough semesters. And here I was, I was home. I was surrounded by people that had known me since I was eight. And we just, you know, those moments that you can only have with really old friends, you can have, you know, good and happy moments with new friends, but there are certain things that you can only laugh about that you can only experience with people that have known you through all of it. And it was one of those nights. It was before any of us had kids, and so we were out till way too late in the night. Um, and as you know, your mom says, nothing good happens after two in the morning. And um, but we we laughed until we cried. We made fun of each other, but in such a way that we were still you know best friends when it was done. And no one's feelings got hurt. We said our goodbyes, and and we all went our separate ways. And as I was driving back to Melissa's dad's house in Palm Harbor, we were had been in Oldsmar. I will never forget this cloud of like existential dread that I felt descending on me at the corner of Curlew and McMullen Booth. Still, whenever I go to the movies, I pass that intersection. I get like the heebie-jeebies, you know, like, I remember where I was. I remember what I felt when I was here. It had just been one of the highlights of my month, if not one of the highlights of my year. And leaving that, I was a hot mess. I couldn't explain it. I don't know if it was this, this thought of, hey, you know, maybe this group will never be together again, or maybe, you know, the, the good times have passed, whatever it was. I don't know what it was, but I don't remember in my life ever feeling that low. And I've experienced, like, you know, real bad things. Like, I've been in hospital re- rooms holding people's hands as they've passed. I've, I've experienced heartache. I've experienced, like, real trouble. And yet that moment of saying goodbye, hey, I'll, you know, text you tomorrow, to some of my closest friends, was that moment when I felt the absolute lowest. And I don't know what it was, but I still remember that feeling, and it's not something I care to experience regularly. And maybe you can relate to that. It's not something that I've experienced often, and it's not something that I hope I experience again. So I hope you can't relate, but I have a feeling that there are people in this room that can relate. You have been through that, why do I feel so miserable and so terrible? I've been through worse things. I've been through harder things, and yet this is the lowest I have ever felt. This morning, we are going to see how God works in those moments. He works when we are at our lowest. He works when we do not feel capable. He works when we feel unable to move. That's the thing about our God. He doesn't need us to be feeling just right for him to show up and work in our lives. So 1 Kings chapter 19 starts off like this. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Ahab naturally tells his wife what happened on Mount Carmel. He left with his entourage of 850 false prophets and is coming home by himself with blood splatter all over his clothes, right? That's going to draw some attention from the, from the missus. Remember, these false prophets were guests in the nation and guests in the house invited by Jezebel. They had been living in the palace. She was feeding them. We were told in the chapter previously that they were eating at her table. She took care of them. She was the patron to all of these false prophets. 
They were somewhere in between house guests and pets to her. And so when she hears that these 850 false prophets have been slaughtered, she is furious and she makes this big, bold promise that she's going to kill Elijah. This phrase, may the gods deal with me ever so severely, is it's an idiom similar to may God strike me down or God help me. She's saying, this is my promise to you. You will not make it to tomorrow. I'm going to have you killed. Now, remember, Elijah has just spent three years being fed by ravens. He's just spent three years uh, drinking fresh water from a babbling brook when the rest of the country was starving. He has just spent three years living with this widow and her son on the same handful of food that never ran out for years at a time. He has just seen God raise this widow's son back to life. And now this one person's going to threaten him. Okay, he's not going to be scared, right? Wrong. Um, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself traveled a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. So Elijah flees south until he is completely out of Ahab's kingdom. We kind of miss that when we see the names of these cities that we've seen in other places in the Old Testament. But remember where he was now in Beersheba, that is a different country than where he was before at Mount Carmel. He has fled the country and then he doesn't just stop at fleeing the country. He keeps going south. He leaves his attendant there in Beersheba, and he keeps going. Beersheba, by the way, is the southernmost uh, city in the nation of Judah. There is an idiom that they would use in, in Old Testament times, during the times of the judges particularly. They would say from Dan, which was the northernmost city, to Beersheba. That would be, you know, hey, you know, from sea to shining sea, from Detroit down to Houston, from New York to L.A., that kind of thing. Um, I'm not going to sing right now, but I could. Um, and so he has gone... Truthfully, the distance of what used to be one big country and has now crossed from the nation of Israel and has now gone through the entire nation of Judah. He finds a shrub tree. This is not a big shade tree, but remember, he's in the middle of the desert. There's not a lot of shade to be found. He curls up into the fetal position underneath this you know, glorified shrub and starts praying, God, I am pointless. I am useless. I don't know what you're doing through me. Just take my life. It'd be so much easier if you would just kill me now, God, so that she doesn't get to do it. I'm done. God, I am over it. I cannot go any farther. Would you please just finish me off? And then God shows up through an angel and provides food for him to eat, and he goes back to sleep. Quick, quick point. Um, Elijah is going through something severe here. This is not a temporary lapse. This is not a, oh, he'll get over it. This was a big thing that he was, was going through. I see things, I, I probably spend way too much time on the internet, but that's another story. Um, but I see things daily about, you know, hey, follower of Jesus, just remember, if you're depressed, so was Elijah. Hey, follower of Jesus, if you're tired, just remember, so was this guy, so was that guy. Here are some steps that you can take to feel better. And it's always like these well-meaning Christians that make these, these things um, they take a little bit of scripture out of context and say, this will fix whatever you are feeling and whatever you are dealing with. 
I want you to think about what Elijah had done that you would think would fix what he was feeling and what he was dealing with. The tips on these things are always, hey, go for a walk, go outside, get some exercise. Um, This guy was just days removed from running down a mountain faster than a chariot. He was good in the exercise department. He had walked the length of two nations. He did not need exercise to feel better. A lack of exercise was not affecting his mood. Some, then they say, hey, if you're, you know, if you're dealing with this, go, go take a nap. He, he took a nap. He had no issue sleeping. In fact, the angel showed up, and what did he do? He went right back to bed. If you can be like hanging out with an angel and be like, all right, peace. I got to go lay back down. Um, a nap is not going to fix what you were going through. He had been given food, again, by an angel. This is not a drive through biscuit that he got. This is something better than that. And yet he is still in so much despair that he is wanting his life to end. There are some things that a nap or a walk or a good meal cannot fix. And that is what Elijah was experiencing here. It's also very interesting to me that the, uh, the language for this food is so specific to Elijah. We're told um, later on that you know, he's given a, a cake to eat, depending on which translation that, that you have. But you know, a cake of bread is the same word for when the widow said you know, that she had enough to make two little cakes for herself and for her son. And that you know, she had them in a jar or a jug. That's the same word used for the water that Elijah was given. So the author wants us to associate these words, this cake of bread and this jar with Elijah and how God has provided with him before. But also God is showing up. God is providing for Elijah and saying, hey, look, does this look familiar? This is how I provided for you before. This is how I took care of you before. And Elijah says, no, I'm just, I'm just going to go back to bed. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay back down. Verse 7 says, then, an, then the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat. For the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by the food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel shows up a second time and says, you've got to get up and go. Um, You have an appointment with God. Where? Mount Horeb. Another name for Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. This is where God met Moses. This is where God gave the nation of Israel the Ten Commandments. This is where so much of the first five books of our Bible come from. It doesn't sound like Mount Horeb was Elijah's original destination. He was expecting to die in the desert a day's walk from Beersheba, but God says, hey, um, you and I have an appointment. You better be there. So he starts walking, and he goes about 40-plus days into the Sinai Peninsula. That is quite a journey. It's only been a few weeks since he was at the widow's house being fed while the rest of the nation starved. It had only been a few weeks since he had been on Mount Carmel and fire rained down from heaven. It had only been a few weeks since Jezebel. And now God says, I want you to meet me at one of the places that is most associated with Elijah's national and ethnic identity. So I tried to find some good maps And they were all just very, very confusing. So I want us to to look at this. So we know that Mount Carmel to Jezreel was about 14 miles. And that is how far he ran down the mountain. But this is extensive travel. This is not, oh, you know, he went and he wandered and did this, that. 
this is some big travel that Elijah is doing. He has gone from kind of the northernmost reaches of the nation of Israel, past the southern borders of Judah, into Mount Sinai, which was and still is considered to be part of Egypt. And while he's there, God shows up and says, um, hey, what are you doing here, Elijah? There he went into the cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous. It's been 40 days. He has rehearsed this time and time again. When the angel said, hey, this is where you got to go. You got to have a meeting with God. Um, he started to go over his answers in his head. And so when God says, what are you doing? He lays out his well-rehearsed speech. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. This what are you doing question is not asked because God is curious. God is not, you know, hey, Elijah, I'm, I'm genuinely curious. What are you doing here? Where are you? This is kind of like in the Garden of Eden where God said to Adam and Eve, where are you? Because there's a place you're supposed to be and you're not there. This is when the HR lady calls you into the office and says, why do you think we're having this meeting? And you think, yeah. This is, uh, do you know why I pulled you over tonight? That is this question right here. And Elijah replies with, uh, God, I feel like I've been doing everything right. I've been doing everything right, but you, God, are allowing everything to go wrong. I'm doing my part. Why aren't you doing your part? I think we can all identify with Elijah here. Um, and more often than we would like to admit, we can say, yeah, I think I've prayed that prayer. God, like, why don't you keep up your end of the deal? God, why don't you do what you're supposed to be doing? But Elijah says something that is incredibly inaccurate here, and he knows it. He says, the people have rejected the one true God, and for the most part, that's true. Except for the fact that just the chapter before, a few weeks before he's making this statement to God, the people have slaughtered these 850 false prophets. The people declared their allegiance to the one true God. The people said, Elijah, you've proved your point. This is the God we're going to follow. This is the God we're going to worship. And then he says, I'm the only one left. At the beginning of chapter 18, we met a prophet named Obadiah who said, hey, uh, great to meet you. You're a hero of mine. By the way, I have been hiding the prophets of the one true God in caves because Obadiah worked at Ahab and Jezebel's palace. And so he knew what their plans were. He knew who they were trying to hunt. And he had been going out of his way to hide prophets from the king and queen. There were hundreds of prophets hidden in caves that Jezebel couldn't find them. And when Elijah is saying, I'm the only one left, God's like, really? Like, didn't, like, a few weeks ago, you heard about these hundreds, plus there's that Obadiah guy you met, and then there's, like, the ten leader or the leaders of the ten tribes of Israel that just very publicly declared their allegiance to me. I have no doubt that emotionally, Elijah felt completely alone, but intellectually, he knew that what his emotions were telling him were not true. He knew for a fact that others had been faithful. But when we are going through distress, when we are experiencing despair, when we are depressed, when we are exhausted, sometimes we, like Elijah, are prone to listen to our emotions more than what we know to be true. And so God said, Elijah, here's the deal. We're going to have this conversation face to face. You're not thinking clearly. And so we are going to have this conversation face to face. 
the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. And again, Elijah grew up going to Saturday school because they didn't have Sunday school yet um, on the Sabbath. He knew about Moses on this very mountain where the presence of God passed by and Moses was able to see his back after hiding in the cleft of the rock. He knows that God's presence has shown himself to humans on this mountain before. And God says, you go out there. I'm going to do something for you. I've only done for one other person ever. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, where or what are you doing here, Elijah? The author is contrasting this low whisper with the sound in, of the spectacular displays of the wind and the earthquake and the fire. And the point is probably that God's presence is best conveyed in this personal communication with his servant, not in some big, showy, spectacular display of power. Remember, Elijah had seen the big, showy, spectacular display. He had been on Mount Carmel when the fire had rained down. But here, God did not need something big and showy to get Elijah's attention. He needed the still, small voice. God gave Elijah a not-so-gentle reminder of who he was and what he was capable of. Elijah, you think you're alone? Boom, earthquake, boom, whirlwind, boom, consuming fire. And God shows up in, and basically says, in light of who I am and what you know I am capable of doing, what are you doing here? Why did you leave the nation that I sent you to? Why did you leave the ministry that I called you to? What are you doing here worrying and griping when you know who I am? And Elijah, he misses it once again. He replies verbatim, to what he said before. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. They didn't have copy and paste back then. The author could have easily summarized Elijah's statement or said, he said what he said before, but he really wanted us and all of his readers throughout the centuries to know that Elijah was still just not getting it. He was experiencing the presence of God in a whirlwind, in an earthquake, in a fire, and then the personal voice of God. And all he could think about was how hard he perceived his life to be. And so God gives him a new assignment and then some perspective. Verse 15 says, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king of Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of, of Nimshi, son of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel. These are, I listened to the audio Bible like six times to get these words right. From Abel, Mahol, you see it, Mahola, to, success you, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazel. And Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I... Reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. 
Notice God does not say, Elijah, you're right. You're tired. You're exhausted. You've been through a lot. Rest up and uh, you know, get back to work once you're feeling better. Sometimes that's what God says. But rather here, God says, yeah, um, I have work for you to do just the way you are. I have work for you to do just in the state that you are in. Even if you don't understand it and you don't necessarily feel like it, I don't care. I'm God and you're not. And you have a job to do. And he says, here's what I want you to realize. I want you to go do this for me because I am not just at work in your nation and with your people, but I am at work in the surrounding nations. I am going to have you go anoint a foreign king because he's the one who I'm going to use to teach the current king a lesson. Here's what I'm going to do in your nation. I'm going to replace Ahab with a new king from a different family. Also, I'm going to start raising up your successor. So you got to get back to work so you can start training him. And oh, by the way, you got it wrong. Forget about, you know, the hundreds in the caves and the ones that have just turned their back on the bales. But I have 7,000 who have never even thought about worshiping another God. Now, we can debate the actual 7,000 if that was the true number. Maybe, you know, seven was kind of the number of completeness. Whereas as Americans, we would kind of use like a million as a big, you know, all-encompassing number. They would use a thousand in Israel to just illustrate a multitude. And so 7,000 would be like, hey, I have completed multitudes of people who have not bowed. But even if it was actually just 7,000, the population of the nation was probably four or 500,000 people at that time. And so he's saying, I've got a chunk of people. I have people who have been faithful that you don't even know about. Remember, you've been out of the country for the past several years. You don't know everything. I'm God. I do know everything. So quit complaining with this. I am the only one left nonsense. Sometimes the voice of God is a comfort and sometimes it is a rebuke. And here for Elijah, it was definitely both. God said, you're not doing the job that I've called you to do, but you're also not alone. And so God sent Elijah back the way he came because God still had work to do through Elijah and God was going to use him just as he was in that state. He wasn't waiting for him to feel better or think differently. God said, I just need you to get to work. A few real quick observations as we wrap up this morning. Despair came to Elijah and despair comes to us when we focus on the problems that we face instead of God. When Elijah started to focus on Jezebel and the power that she might have to track him down, that is when his despair set in. When he stopped focusing on who God was and what God could do, that is when this despair started. His focus changed from God to the problem, and that is when despair set in. Despair came to Elijah when he was focusing just on the wonders of God instead of the word of God. When the big sign was not there, when the big sign was over, and God was not immediately calling down fire from heaven, God was not immediately empowering him by the Holy Spirit to run down a mountain the way that he had before, once the big sign was over, he quit paying attention. Instead of focusing on the word of God that is forever true, instead of focusing on the call in his life, which hadn't changed, he said, God, you're, you're done doing the big stuff, I guess. Now that the big stuff is done, I am in trouble. 
which is why he was in a place that he shouldn't have been because he left the place he should have been. And God was saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then the third way that the despair showed up in Elijah's life was that he was focused more on his inadequacy than he was on God's resources. We do this all the time. God, I am not worthy. I am not able to do these things. I am not as good as this person. I'm not as good as you want me to be. And what God is saying to Elijah is, yeah, you're not as good. You're not as stable as you should be. You're not as confident as you should be. But I don't need you to be confident in yourself. I need you to be confident in me. God's resources were as powerful as they ever had been before. And Elijah's inadequacies were irrelevant to a God who could do anything. When we live on emotions, we forget about God's resources and we focus on where we don't measure up. And when Elijah did that, the despair set in. He had two big problems. There were some things that he forgot about. And there were some things that he didn't know about. He forgot about what God had just done. He forgot about God's faithfulness. He forgot about the fact that God had provided for him and had spared him for several years already. And because he didn't know what was going on back in his country, because he didn't know what God was doing in the surrounding countries, he assumed that nothing was going on. And God showed up and said, remember who I am, remember what I've done. And also, you don't know everything. You don't know how I'm working in other places. When we lose sight of God's past faithfulness, we don't factor him into our future. Our fear can drive us to places we have no business going relationally, financially, emotionally. When we forget about God's faithfulness and only focus on the fear that we have, we can end up like Elijah in a place that we have no business being. But as we remember him in our past, we can see him in our future. Here's the encouragement and the good news this morning. Our God is still at work. Our God can and will still work through us when we have doubts. Our despair, our disappointment, our depression do not limit what God is capable of doing in us or through us or for us. At a, the height of Elijah's breakdown, God was still providing for him and planning to use him in great ways. We don't have to be perfect or have it all together to be used by God. But when we feel despair, what we need to do is we need to remember we need to remember who God is and what he has done. When looking ahead makes us fearful, we need to look back and remember what God has done. We need to know that there are things that we have forgotten about and that there are things that we don't know about. We don't always know what God is doing in other people and in other places, but we can remember what God has done for us. When we place the uncertainty of the future in the context of God's faithfulness in the past, his promises of care for us will go into the future and then we can experience peace. And that's what Elijah needed to learn here in 1 Kings 19. Just because it doesn't feel like God is working does not mean that God is not at work. God was at work in big ways in Elijah's life and in the world that was around Elijah. And God showed up in the next chapters and proved that to him. There are going to be times when we don't sense God working. There are going to be times when we wonder, God, what are you doing? I have played my part. I have done what I'm supposed to do. Why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? And in those moments, we need to remember 
what God has done in the past. And we need to be reminded that we don't always know what God is doing in the future. Would you pray with me? God, show us how faithful you have been so that we can trust you to be just as faithful going forward. God, show us how you have provided for, show us how you have sustained, show us how you have taken care of us in the past so that we will trust that you will do the same in the future. Father, how grateful we are that you don't need us to be perfect or to have it all together to be used by you. Father, I pray that in a week when we have experienced the natural phenomena, we have experienced the rushing wind, we have experienced the high waters. God, I ask now that you would speak to us in the still small voice to remind us that you are a God who loves us. You are a God who cares, but you are a God who has a plan and a purpose for us. And that that plan and that purpose might not always be what we want or expect, but that plan and that purpose is always that you would be glorified through us and through our stories. Father, thank you that you can use us. May we respond in obedience like Elijah did, even when we don't feel like it. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.